You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today we are going to be talking about what has become known as the West Coast video murders. So we're going to take a step back into the 90s now. But before we really get into the details of the case, I just wanted to start by quickly just introducing you to the victims. Sean Campbell, I couldn't find as much about him, but he was born on January 29th, 1973, and he hoped to become an engineer. But his parents also said He had an interest in law enforcement, and at the time that all this happened, he was working full-time at a Sylvan Pools and part-time at a West Coast video store where he'd been for six years. And then there was Brian Benson, who was nicknamed the Dove because of how gentle he was and how he would peacefully intervene between his brothers when they fought, which I think is just the cutest. Um, He wanted to produce... Yeah, he wanted to produce movies and was attending Bucks County Community College. Brian had only been working part time at the video store for six months. The men were reportedly best friends. I'm not sure if that's hyped up a little bit. They were at least at least sort of friends. I don't know. They knew each other at least a little bit (laughs) about their relationship. But I don't know if that's I've never heard anything really from their families. So I don't know if it's reporters trying to you know, make more out of embellish a little bit. Yeah. Um, So I'm not exactly sure, but they both graduated from William Tennant High School and were both 20 years old when they died. They were also both well liked within the community. So like I mentioned, Sean and Brian both worked at the West Coast Video Store. It was in the Rosemore Shopping Center in Warminster, Pennsylvania. On the night of Wednesday, November 10th, 1993, around 9 p.m., Brian's father, Gary, stopped in to rent some videos. Nothing was out of the ordinary and the store was going to be closing at 10. So Gary didn't stay for very long. And Brian wasn't even supposed to work that night. He had shown up by mistake and his supervisor asked him if he could stay. And Brian agreed. So he and Sean waited on a few other customers, then got ready to close up the store. Shortly after 10 p.m., the two men ended up in the X-rated section of the store, which, if you remember, video stores was hidden behind a door or sometimes they were behind a curtain. But this one was behind a door. And this is where they were viciously attacked. The attacker or attackers began stabbing the two employees with long bladed knives in the back, neck and chest. Apparently, the two employees, Sean and Brian, fought hard and had some really deep defensive wounds. The attacker or attackers cut the security camera's wire, though apparently it wasn't even operating that night. Of course. But how do they know um, it's not operating if the thing was cut? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but I, well, it was apparently set to start recording after the store was closed and locked up and it was pointed the at the point? cash register. I know. Mm-hmm. I guess it was just for like thefts after they were closed, I which see. looking back now in hindsight, of course, is like great, helpful. Or, I mean, I wonder if it just wasn't working and maybe they knew that because there was no like if they found the wires were cut, but they had no video leading up to 
any of that point, then like, you know, the wires were intact that morning, but there's no video feed at all from that day. So maybe it just wasn't working before. It was normally supposed to be set for after they closed. And this happened like right before they closed, Okay, like right at that point. So, um, so maybe someone that knew that. Yeah, that's kind of the idea that I have. But anyway, they stole $300 out of the register. So originally the motive was assumed to be robbery, but the killer or killers left more money than they took. So they left money in the register and they left the men's wallets. So that theory kind of fell apart pretty quickly. And I'm also kind of thinking like, why take any money at all? If that wasn't, if that clearly wasn't the motive, why just take all of the money? (laughs) Maybe. I wonder. So when, when they say there was money left, was it like in a safe for depositing? Or was it there was more money in the actual register? It seemed to me that there was still money in the actual register. And I'm thinking if they had just closed, then probably all the cash from that day was probably in the register. I'm thinking I don't really know exactly what their procedures were. But um, yeah, why don't you? You should know all of this. I know you're right. And like, would they have a safe at West Coast or (laughs) that's I mean, I've worked a lot of retail jobs and they all had safes, but none of them were like small mom and pop businesses. Like, I mean, my brother's self-employed and he doesn't keep stuff in a safe. So, you know, like maybe not a small business like that, but I don't know. I don't think that isn't there wasn't that technically a chain store like that wasn't a like a small store yeah i assume that it would have a save yeah i don't know if it was franchised but either way i mean it was a big chain that's true but i mean from what i saw it there was still money in the register and they had their wallets on them so maybe i i feel like sometimes people think that if they can like fake like the robbery type scene they really don't Mm -hmm. know what goes into it they just assume that like some some stuff's taken at all like you hear it all the time so many stories it's like right that cover-up of a you know robbery gone wrong that's true they could have just grabbed some cash and been like oh we'll make this look like the motive and that's why right um also there's the fact that robbers rarely use knives i mean if they're there to rob you and to get money, they're not really there to get up close and personal. Like if they have a weapon, they would normally have a gun. There's no way I could think that it would just be one attacker with a knife. With a gun, definitely. But with a knife and two people? Yeah. I mean, uh, that it, there would have to be more than one. Unless one was attacked first and the other person went to go look for them and got like surprised that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is kind of hard to tell because no uh, video camera footage. Right. So their bodies were found 11 hours later when the store owner came in the next morning to open the store. He found the front door ajar and eventually came upon Sean and Brian's bodies in the back room. And the community, especially those who worked in shops nearby, were terrified. Like, were they going to be next? The police had no idea who the attacker or attackers were. And therefore, they weren't sure if it was a personal attack or if it was complete strangers. And at the time, if they were thinking robbery was the motive, then it very well could be that they were working their way 
through local shops. So everyone was really scared. So in the weeks after the murders, the police called the families every day to update them on the case. But as time went on, those calls became fewer and fewer until they virtually stopped as leads dried up. The only piece of physical evidence found was a, at least at first, was a cheap fake gold and diamond stud earring that was believed to have been ripped out of an attacker's ear. Yeah, so but some blood and flesh was found on it enough to get a blood type and a DNA sample. Unfortunately, DNA is only useful if you can match it with a person. And so far, that hasn't happened. How do they know it wasn't just. I mean, if it's cheap, fake gold and somebody maybe left it in for a while, like. It could cause. Like an infection or some sort of blood on it and then it just falls out of your ear like it wouldn't necessarily be that person's like the attacker's earring i think i mean i was kind of led to believe that there was it was pretty obvious that it came out during the struggle like there must have been a significant enough amount of like flesh or blood around it and they determined that it wasn't either of it wasn't sean or brian's like i think at least one of them did have their ear ears pierced but like the earrings were in and intact and everything so gotcha let me tell you so um in rugby like you're technically not supposed to wear like jewelry and stuff like that but you have these women that will be like oh i'm a nipples pierced or my belly button pierced i'm not gonna take it out it's not gonna be a problem no like as like people grabbing to like tackle and stuff it takes when they rip out it takes a good portion and it is miserable it's not clean you'd think it would like easily come out like the piercing it does not it rips like skin. you can rip your whole <laughs> off i hate this <laughs> sorry i just need to point out that grace and i are like squirming oh, listening yeah. to this meanwhile we can talk about the cases of the murder or the details of the murder and we're totally fine talking about those sorts of uh items because yeah, like... we're so used to it but talk about a piercing falling out and we're both like <sighs> Uh, and I've no. been thinking about belly buttons, so like thinking about a belly button piercing, like, uh. <laughs> yeah, it happens it. so commonly, and life, especially newer girls, they just do not listen. Whatever you want to get your out, so so be it. No thanks. Chelsea's like, oh, I'm gonna rip your piercings right out of you. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, please don't hurt me. <laughs> Since you know the leads had kind of dried up, and the police weren't communicating. As often, Brian's father, Gary, began collecting any information he could find about similar crimes in the area involving knives or stabbings. Um, So he would kind of get a little collection and then turn over whatever he found at the police in the hopes that this would jog memories or at least remind them that the family still needed answers. They also spoke to literally any media outlet that showed an interest in the case. And if they could have hired a private investigator, they would have, but they never had the means to do so. And this just breaks my heart because I can just like imagine them. And I've seen them on a couple of videos because they, like I said, they talk to the media quite a bit and they're just like the sweetest people. They just want answers. I can just imagine like Gary just collecting all of these newspaper clippings. It kills me. I have a question. Do PIs kind of like lawyers do like pro bono cases or is that like, I know not a thing or I've never heard of it, but 
I think some of them might, but I'm not, I don't really know anything about them. I don't know if you do, Sarah. Yeah, it just makes me really sad. They were also really open about how hard it was on their marriage. So like just the things that they can like admit and talk about, like they seem like such strong people. Like they've yeah. had to deal you with really this. You really don't get that side either. Yeah. Usually people won't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're just, they're really open about it and how it's affected their lives. Now, Sean's family moved after the murder, not far, just kind of to the other end of the county. And they don't seem to be as vocal, but that doesn't mean that they want answers any less, of course. Initially, police believed there were two attackers, just like you guys were mentioning. But I think that may have changed over the years to one. I'm just, I'm not exactly sure. It's just that later articles seem to just say one attacker, but I never saw anything official that police said they really changed their stance. Um, But apparently both Sean and Brian were pretty sturdy guys. Like they were at least six foot and fairly muscular. So yeah, how would one attacker have overpowered them? I wonder how they even determine that. Now, I mean, I guess they would look at like the blades, the angle of the impact, you know, things like that. But I mean, if there was more than one person, you figure if they just both had the same knife and were both either right handed or left handed, most of that's going to look the same then because you're going to have the same size blade. <clears throat> Excuse me, you're going to have the same size blade. You're going to have the same direction of momentum if you're right-handed versus left-handed. Like, if the three of us were committing a crime and, you know, I'm right-handed and you're left-handed, then the way that things look are going to look different. Right. Um, The three of us just aren't going to commit crimes. But for the sake of, of understanding, like, it would have different momentum and a different landing point in something based on what hand it's in right so i wonder if maybe saying it was one means that like it was just the same blade or you know they were both right-handed or left-handed or um both of similar height like if more than one person was involved Right. I'm thinking maybe it may have something to do with the wounds and it all coming from the same knife, which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean it was only one person. But if it was two people each with their own knives, they would probably the knives would probably be at least a little bit different. So it's true. But I mean, it could have been like one person working to overpower that one of them and then the other one stabbing. I don't know, but I, you know, they haven't really released anything super specific about that. Right. Investigators also began to believe that the attacker or attackers were local and knew the two men personally. And I mean, stabbing, especially so viciously, that seems very personal. Right. It's unknown whether the attackers were hiding in the back of the store or if they came in and lured the men to the back room where they were murdered. Again, no video surveillance, so we don't really know. Investigators interviewed over 300 people, including the 75 that have been there during the men's shift that night from 5 to 10. Like, remember when video stores were busy? (laughs) Right? I love it. 
Apparently, they announced a quote unquote actionable lead in uh, 2013. But from what I've seen, nothing ever came of that. And I think now that we've all been doing this podcast for a year, like almost exactly crazy. Um, we've come across this time and again, police like somewhat recently making vague, promising announcements and then like silence, like yeah. no information from then on out. It's like super frustrating. In 96, Brian Benson's parents, Gary and Janice Benson, agreed to appear on the Montel Williams show with his frequent guest, psychic Sylvia Brown. An old friend of Brian's was a producer on the show and reached out to the couple. And Janice and Gary aren't exactly the types to consult a psychic, but they figured appearing on a national TV show would help with publicity um, and remind the public and the police that this case was still unsolved. Quick note, Sylvia Brown infamously told Amanda Berry's mother that Amanda was dead. And then if you guys remember the case, Amanda Berry was actually found having been kidnapped and held hostage for years. Unfortunately, by this time, her mother had been dead for a few years. So she went to her grave believing this psychic that her daughter was dead. So that's just kind of like, <laughs> I tried to look up the specific episode that um, Brian's parents were on. But like the summaries of each episode were so vague and none mentioned names. And I'm just not about to watch a billion episodes of Montel Williams featuring a shitty psychic. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't blame you. Like, I really would have liked to have seen it, but um, the parents did say in one article that nothing earth shattering was said, which surprise, surprise. In March of 97, investigators got a lead about a rusty butcher knife that was found behind the shopping center. Apparently, it matched the men's wounds and was tested for fingerprints and blood. But I couldn't find any follow up after this. And I literally only found it in one article from November 97 in an issue of the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I really don't know. That's crazy that it would be there for, what, three and a half years? Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Like, if that actually was the knife. Yeah, I don't. I don't Although know. I could see it. I mean, if there's a dumpster back there, it slides under the dumpster, under a fence, near a gutter or something. That's crazy, though. Yeah, but I guess it, it didn't really lead to anything, unfortunately. So Ronnie Polineski is a journalist who reported on the story when it first happened and has caught up with the Benson family from time to time over the years. So they're sort of documenting the couple's journey since their son's murder. So in 2005, a couple who lived just a few blocks from the Benson family was stabbed to death. Arrests were made just a week later, and the Benson family waited with bated breath to find out whether these murders and the murder of their son were linked. In fact, a number of murders since their sons have seriously hit close to home. In 99, 42-year-old Karen Lee Hortis was murdered in the parking lot of the Centerpoint Shopping Center, which is just like blocks from where um, the couple's son had been killed six years earlier. The suspect in this murder had attended William Tennant High School, where um, all of the Benson children, including Brian, had gone to school. And Brian would have been about three years ahead of this of the suspect. And I'm assuming this isn't like a huge school. So they probably knew people within um, 
Like, even though they were three years apart, they likely knew each other. So it is a pretty small school. So I'm guessing they had if they were only three years apart, they probably did know about each other. And then a few years before this, Arthur Bomer, a former Warminster uh, resident, was convicted of killing college student Amy Willard. Uh, Bomar had even purchased a car from the dealership where Janice Benson had worked. I don't know if you remember Arthur Bomar was mentioned in our previous episode with Maria. I am blanking on her last name. Uh, Buenos. Yes, that is it. That's why you sounded familiar. Yes. And then Julie. Yes. Yes. um, Yep. I cannot say her last name that well. I remember, Sarah, you had to help me with that, too. (laughs) Um. But he was linked to their murders, but because especially Maria, since she was, you know, not that wealthy woman, she was Hispanic, uh, they kind of dropped it off. And I guess a lot of people feel in the community that because he's already behind bars, like what else is there to do? But he was Mm. linked to both of them, Julie and Maria as well. Maria Cabuenos and Julie Barniak. See, I'm bad with the last names. First names, I got you, but I tried. That's okay. I found it. Yeah, actually, Amy Willard stuck in my brain more, and I could not remember where I had heard that name, but you had mentioned that. That's so funny, because she was only mentioned briefly. I know, but, well, maybe it's good that I'm remembering the victims' names rather than the monsters that uh, killed them. (laughs) So then there was the Warminster police chief controversy. In 93-94, the police chief at the time was accused of using his position to solicit sex from girls as young as 12. That's gross. Wow. Yep. So not only did this scandal take away publicity from Brian and Sean's case, it shook the faith the families had in local law enforcement. Well, yeah. And even better, the police chief was never prosecuted, by the way, because of the statute of limitations expiring. Ugh. Fantastic. I love that sex crimes have a statute of limitations. It's but that, that's kind of changing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. Thank God. Not, not quite as much as it should, but. Right. In the right progress direction. Progress is progress. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Then in 2004, police chief James Gorzinski was arrested on 100 counts of theft and related charges. Well, damn. This dude stole almost $150,000 of federal and township money, including $900 that a good Samaritan had found in cash in a parking lot and turned in. And he just took it. What the heck? Like, where, where's the integrity in this town? That's awful. Yeah. So when Gorzinski had become the chief back in 97, Brian's parents had been excited that new eyes might be on their son's case. And they even met with him shortly after he became the police chief. And they had so much faith in him. They were like, this is great fresh eyes and obviously now that faith was completely shattered and it also didn't help that earlier that same year in 2004 a warminster police officer was charged with arranging to meet a 13 year old for sex stop what is happening like why what is (sighs) going on so maybe that's a whole different thing that they need to look into good gravy or hopefully they did because they've had enough time to do so Brian's younger brother, Andrew Benson, was bitter about this in a 2004 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And like, how could he not be? I'd be bitter as too. He said that he sometimes wished that his brother had been murdered in another town. That is so sad to think because that's probably true. Yeah, honestly, when you really stop and think about it. 
Now, there are rumors about local investigators screwing up the original investigation in 93 anyway, so it didn't start out on a very good foot. And I saw on a Reddit thread, so take it with a grain of salt, um, that the local police declined the involvement of Philadelphia officers. But I mean, we do see that a lot sometimes with smaller um, police forces kind of letting their egos get in the way. So it's entirely possible. Both families apparently have and had their own theories, but have declined to elaborate because they don't want to compromise the investigation. And then on the same note, it's also possible that the police know more than what they've released to the public. I mean, that happens all the time. But, you know, the information I shared is all the information that's public knowledge. So hopefully they've got more. I really hope so. So a reward was fundraised by the community shortly after the murders. and it it took a few years to really grow, but there were continuous efforts by locals and there was even a hockey game played by retired Flyers players. And eventually it reached about cool. $60,000. I know. Cool, right? Unfortunately, that reward money didn't lead to any useful information. So just this past year, the family, um, they said specifically... Brian's family, but I'm assuming, you know, it kind of had to be a joint decision. They decided to donate the money back to the community and they gave it to the Warminster Rotary Club and organizations such as the Warminster Food Bank received part of the money. I know they got this like huge industrial freezer. They did like a little bit on it, um, a little news story on it, and they were just really grateful that the family would give that back to the community. That is so great. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I don't take it as they're like giving up, but I just don't think that they think this reward money, if it hasn't enticed someone by now, it probably won't. It's not going to. And it's going to take like someone actually, if someone knows something, it's going to take them, you know, actually maybe feeling guilt or a deathbed confession or something like that. It's just just thinking. $60,000 years and years later, I don't think is going to turn anyone. Yeah. So my immediate thoughts are it was a very personal attack and there was a lot of rage. And I definitely do not think that it was money, money motivated at all. So I do agree. I would agree with that. That it was someone that knew them and whether this person came after both of them or maybe they were going after one or the other and the other was kind of you know collateral damage i wonder if someone was just going after sean because brian wasn't supposed to be working that night and then his boss asked him if he would i thought that too and i was thinking about that but then i was like how close would this person have to be to them to like know their schedules and when they were supposed to be there another coworker. Yeah. True. But I f- don't you Again, feel like they someone found that would know about now? the video. <laughs> someone that would know about the video feed also. Yeah, and it like, seems that way, but it's just like there was no talk of any employees like leaving immediately, so like the murder just what shows up to work in the coming days and right. It just seems so far-fetched unless the police are really that bad. <laughs> Which, well, apparently they're spending all their time with children, pedophiles. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, all I can really put together is it was someone that 
knew them. And hopefully the police and the family know more than that. But I don't really have anything I else. I wonder if they actually... I would hope so. ...saying about, like, the piercing that fell out. Maybe it's something, like, down the future we just saw in that one case that you posted about using, right. I believe, genealogy, correct? To find mm-hmm. out. I mean, that seems to be more and more popular. Maybe that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to the E-Town College student that... I thought that was so cool. I think that's awesome. Eric Schubert. <laughs> and to know that he's helped with other cases, and I think he does it for free, if I read correctly. It seems that way. It. But... Yeah. I mean, either way, he sounds like he's a really great asset. So go E-Town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you have any information about the murder of Sean Campbell and Brian Benson, you can call the Warminster Police Department at 215-443-5000. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.